Waiting can be hard, can't it? (laughs) Let's admit it. Sometimes, even though we get frustrated, some waiting is relatively minor in the grand scheme of life. And as I thought about that, I thought about, you know, some mornings you stand in the kitchen trying to remember your name while you wait for that coffee to brew. Like, come on, coffee maker. (laughs) Or maybe you're late for work or late for school and you're sitting at a red light and you're saying, come on, green light. And you feel like that wait is so hard, even though it's only seconds. Or maybe you're waiting for a class to be over because you think that subject's boring. Don't hold up your hands, students. Or listeners to sermons. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's hard to wait, but in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty minor. But there are other times where waiting is more significant. And, and I was thinking about some of you who are students, and especially older students, and, and maybe you've had to take an exam, an exam, that, an exam that not only determined your grade for that term, but... Maybe a grade that determines whether you're going to get into the college of your choice or the military branch of your choice or your grad school of choice. And you've taken that exam and you're wondering, did I score high enough? And you wait. You wait to hear how that exam went, and it's hard to wait. Or maybe even more seriously, the doctor is suspicious that you might have some potentially life-threatening disease or maybe a loved one with a life-threatening disease and, and your physician requires certain medical tests and, and you take those tests and you wait. You wait wanting to hear back what, what was the result of that test and waiting can be hard. And I imagine in a group this size that there are some today that find waiting excruciating. Maybe you feel like you're living in a dark room of uncertainty wondering what's going to happen with your life. And even if you haven't said it out loud in your heart, you're asking questions like, is God paying any attention to me? Has he forgotten me? Waiting can be hard. Join me, please, in Genesis chapter 8. We're continuing, for those of you who are guests this morning, a special welcome to you, and yes, I do feel like a guest as well. I've been traveling a lot for ministry lately, and it's so good to be home. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for the privilege of being uh, among the flock and getting to serve you this morning this way. Pastor Mark, last Sunday, preached from Genesis chapter 7. Is Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark. And to get a kind of a running jump for chapter 8, let me just back up for a minute and read to you some of the verses from Genesis 7. If you have your Bible open there on your phone or a print copy, follow along as I just selectively read from chapter 7 just to get a picture and to get a feel for what it might have been like for Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Genesis chapter 7, let me just read 6 and 7. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Drop down to verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Seven days waiting in the ark with no rain. And then the rain came. Look at verse 17 and following. 
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in, those, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. How long? How long would Noah and his family and the animals need to stay on that dark, stinky boat? <laughs> I was reading something from the late James Montgomery Boyce, and he said it this way. Maybe we can sympathize not only with Boyce, but with Noah. Boyce wrote, I have some appreciation for Noah's feelings after he had been drifting on the endless world sea for almost a year. Following the onslaughts of, his, of the flood, he had been a man of faith, and then quoting from Genesis 6-9, blameless among the people of that time, but he was human too, and the sea is a very lonely place. Imagine drifting on a large ship, not merely overnight, but night after night, month after month for a year with nothing in sight. During those months, faith or no faith, Noah must have wondered whether God had not forgotten him, his family, and the animals as they floated like insignificant bits of refuse on the great tide. How long, how long would Noah and his family and the animals have to wait for relief from this flood of God's judgment around them. Let's find out. Let's read chapter 8 now, the first five verses. Genesis chapter 8, the first five verses. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Genesis 8 Verse 1, God remembered Noah. What does that mean? You know, kids, it doesn't mean that God was up in heaven and all of a sudden went, oh, that's right, Noah. I forgot about him. No, God never forgets anything in that sense. And yet, when it says in the Bible, God remembered, 
Some of you that have been Christians for a while and you're familiar with your Bible, that sounds very familiar to you, God remembered or God remembers. That phrase, God remembered, is a common phrase in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. God remembered. It doesn't mean that God had been forgetful and all of a sudden he came to his senses. What it means is God determined now is the time to act to rescue people from some predicament. And so God's people, a person or a group of people that belong to him, have been in some hardship, some difficulty. They've been in some potential tragedy. It could be something significant like the potential loss of life or, or a barrenness of womb. There was some tragedy people were facing. Even though the people involved might not have known God's timetable, God had a timetable even if he had not revealed it. And so when the time came according to his timetable, and God says, from his throne in heaven, as it were, now's the time. Now is the time to rescue my people. Now is the time to show mercy to my son, my daughter, in that tragedy, in that predicament. When God determines, now is the time to act, in the Bible that is often put in these words, God remembered. God remembered. And that phrase, God remember, is just, it just bathed, it just bathed in this understanding of God's patience, this understanding of God's covenant mercies, that he is a good and gracious God, and he never forgets his people. He always has his people on his heart. And he has determined, even if he's never revealed it to his people, he has determined the time when he will come and rescue, when he will come and bring relief. And when that time comes, God remembered. And here in Genesis 8, we read those glorious words, God remembered Noah. <laughs> Noah had been in that ark with his wife, with his three sons, their wives, and all those animals for 150 days. And God just determined that now was the time to bring relief from the darkness of that ark. This is a comfort to us. One of the perils of studying the uh, whole account in the Bible of Noah and the flood is that it's been presented so many times through children's books and videos and well-meaning, well, I don't know if they're well-meaning or not, sermons, <laughs> and it's presented in some sort of cutesy form. The story of Noah and the flood is not a cutesy story. And there's little drawings with giraffe necks sticking up out of this little boat. That's not a good picture. The whole story of Noah and the flood is a story of God's salvation in the midst of judgment. God's salvation in the midst of judgment. That the world is being judged. And God in his mercy spares these eight people and representatives from all the animal world. It's a comfort to us because we're reminded in this story that God doesn't forget us. And you know, sometimes in the Bible, God tells us what he's going to do. He tells us what he is going to do. But he doesn't always tell us when. And one that all of us believers share in common is that our Savior's promise to come back. He's going to come back and bring relief. He's going to come back and bring salvation, ultimate salvation, rescue from this fallen world. And we know that's true. He put it in his book. He put it in the Bible, that Jesus Christ is coming back. 
and yet he never told us when. Now, there are other illustrations of that in the Bible, but it is not uncommon at all for God to tell us what he's going to do, but he doesn't always tell us when. And not knowing when can be hard. And so my question for you this morning, my question for me this morning, the question I have for all of us this morning is this. How are we supposed to maintain our faith in God and our peace with God when we don't know the when? We know ultimate salvation is coming. Jesus Christ is coming back, but we don't know when that is. And in the meantime, we're living in a fallen world. You can think back to maybe this morning or the past week to difficulties you faced, challenges you faced, maybe physical challenge, maybe medical challenges, or maybe relational issues, but you faced difficulties even in this past week. And life is hard. And you say, when's this going to be over? Jesus, when, Jesus when, when are you going to come back and fix all this? When are you coming back and, and fixing this broken world? When are you going to come back and fix my world? And, and we live with that, and we don't know the when. So how do we keep our faith strong and sure when we're living in a fallen world and we don't know when relief is coming from his sovereign hand? I've been thinking about this in recent months. A dear friend of ours, a fellow pastor, lost his wife to cancer. And he grieved, and as he was teaching other people about grief, he, he brought to our minds a verse from Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. And, and since my friend John, our friend John shared that, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You read it here on the screen. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And Moses was teaching the children of Israel out there in the wilderness as they were ending their wilderness journey, and at least some of them were about to enter the promised land. He's teaching the people of Israel an important lesson. He said, some things God's revealed to us. We know now they're in the Bible. He's, he's told us. God isn't trying to hide things from us. He's revealing himself to us. There are some things he's revealed to us. Those things he's revealed to us are for us, for our benefit and the benefit of our children. But there are some things he's not revealed to us. And, and Moses called those the secret things of God. We sang this morning about God's sovereignty just a few minutes ago. God is sovereign. That means he's kingly. That he manages this whole world perfectly all the time. He never takes a vacation, never goes to sleep, never for a second, not for a nanosecond, is a single atom of this universe outside his control. Think about that. Not, not for a single nanosecond is a single atom outside the sovereign control of the king of the universe. He's told us that. And yet, we don't always know the details. We don't know the specifics of that all the time. Some things he hasn't revealed to us. He hasn't made them known to us. 
But what Moses is teaching the Israelites, and what I think we can learn as well, is this. The more we understand, the more, the more we recall the character of God, the more we marinate our minds and our hearts in the promises of God, the more the revealed truths about God are part of our whole way of looking at life, the more we can trust those areas that he hasn't revealed. Some of us gathered a few days ago to work through this passage together, and Brother Dave Sikkim is at the back there. I'm going to quote you without your permission. <laughs> Dave said something that I grabbed my pen and wrote it down. And he said this, the reason I can trust the promise is that I can trust the promiser. Thank you, brother. The reason I can trust the promise is that I can trust the promise, sir. And for all of us here today who are believers and all of you who will become believers in his sovereign grace, let me remind you that the revealed things belong to us. Are you devoting yourself or you're devoting your time and your energy to know him? Peter said at the end of his second letter, but, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you devoting your mind, your heart, your time to say, I want to know Christ? Is that the cry of your heart? I don't care if you've been a Christian for two weeks or 60 years. Is that the cry of your heart? I want to know Christ. And you're, and you're studying your Bible. You're listening to wholesome sermons. You're reading books that are saturated with the Word of God. And you're saying, I want to know Him. I want to know His character. I want to know the things He's revealed in His Word. And the more those things, the more the revealed things become part of your thinking, the part of your affections. Then whenever you're wrestling with the things that he hasn't revealed, when you're wrestling with the secret things, questions like, how long, O oh Lord? And even though that's an honest prayer, by the way, how long, O oh Lord? Your heart, your questions are anchored, anchored in the things that he has revealed. That you can say with assurance, I, I know my Savior, that he is worthy of my trust, that he loves me, and I'm in his hands. And he has good plan for me someday when he returns, when he calls me home. And the more that becomes part of us, the more we rest our hope in the promiser. Even when some things are not revealed, the secret things of God. Back on the boat. Let's get back to Noah. <laughs> Look at chapter 8 again. Let me read verses 6 through 12. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window. That's, that's after the, the water stopped, right? At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place for, to set her foot. And she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, 
And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Now, by now you're thinking, oh, now they're going to leave the ark. Not yet. In the 601st year, by the way, that means from the time Noah was born, okay? Back before the flood, people lived abnormally long compared to today. Something changed in genetics and environment after the flood that lifespan started declining. But before the flood, people lived long times. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So here, God stopped the flood. Now, even as you heard from Pastor Mark, God is the one. God is the one. This was not a natural phenomenon. God was the one who brought judgment upon the earth by opening, by opening these underground, these subterranean reservoirs of water. And he opened the water from above, too. But now, on God's timing, God's sovereign hand reached down to that faucet of those subterranean reservoirs, and he shut the faucet. And it's like he reached up to the heavens, and he turned the faucet about the water coming from above. He shut off the water from below. He shut off the water from above, and the flood level stopped. They didn't rise any longer and then they started to slowly abate. And it says in this passage that God sent a powerful wind to begin drying the earth. And one of you brothers, I think it was Micah, reminded me that the children of Israel who heard this account there in the wilderness, I mean, remember Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right? And he wrote it for us, but he wrote it to the Israelites in the wilderness, and those people who heard this being read, maybe Moses himself, maybe Aaron or someone else read this aloud. And as they were hearing this account for the first time about the wind drying up the water, did their minds turn back a year ago when they were standing panicking at the edge of the Red Sea and whew, God sent his sovereign wind and it parted the Red Sea as dry ground and the Israelites crossed? Did that go through their minds? They'd also heard read to them the account of creation in Genesis 1. What we know is Genesis 1. About God's spirit hovering above the waters. The, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, can also mean wind. Did they think about that? Creation. That there is all these reminders that God's done this before. God's done this before. He has sent wind in miraculous ways. And now the wind is blowing and Noah and his family can hear the wind blowing and drying up the earth. You know, when I thought about this, and I'm not going to stake my life on this, but I wonder if there are echoes of this particular time in history recorded in Psalm 104. And it, it definitely has application to the whole creation account, but I wonder if part of this psalm also reminds us of the flood and the abating of the waters. Psalm 104, 5 through 9, listen to this. It says, He, God, set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be moved. You, God, covered it with the deep as with a garment, and the water stood above the mountains. 
At your rebuke, they fled. There's the wind. And the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose and the valley sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass so they might not again cover the earth. Now, if there is at least some echo of the flood abating, the waters going down in this psalm, then it makes me think that sometimes maybe our understanding of what it was like physically uh, is a bit um, inadequate. You know, I've heard people say, oh, come on, a worldwide flood. I mean, Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet high. You tell me that... You telling me that God sent a flood 30,000 feet deep? We don't know how deep the flood was. We know it was deep, at least 15 cubits uh, deeper than any uh, top of the mountain. But if I'm reading Psalm 104 correctly, it talks about mountains rising and valleys deepening. And it made me wonder if during this whole account of the flood, if God didn't do some amazing reconstructing of the topography of the world. And after the flood, in our day, some of the mountains are higher than they were before the flood, and some of the valleys are deeper than they were before the flood. And maybe even the ocean basins themselves were deepened during this era. And people scratch their heads sometimes and say, well, if the water's covered the earth, where'd all that water go? And they, they try to disprove the flood by these arguments. And I'm thinking, there's a whole lot here we don't know. It, but it's quite possible, if Psalm 104 is referring to the rising of the mountains and the deepening of the valleys, that during this whole flood era, that God changed the topography of the world. That mountains became higher and valleys became deeper and oceans became deeper and the water had some place to go. And it might also explain, if the mountains rose, why even today you can go up on certain mountains and find fossils of sea life. When I was a kid, my dad drove a dump truck. And he usually hauled coal, but if the coal wasn't moving, he'd haul limestone. And there was a particular hill just a mile or two from where I grew up in the hills of western Pennsylvania where they'd go up and dig out limestone. And my dad was a believer. And I remember dad coming home sometimes say, you know what we found up there? We found fossils of shells, fossils of sea life up on the hill. He says, how do you think that got there? And my dad knew the answer. He was just trying to help us understand. You know, and it's quite possible that that might explain even today why they can find sea life fossils on hills and mountains. Back, back to the Bible account, though. There's some of those just my wonderings. <laughs> One day, Moses and his family apparently felt some sort of thump, some sort of bump. And for the first time in five months, the ark was not moving. The ark had grounded on one of the mountains of Ararat. And I said that very carefully, one of the mountains of Ararat. I've heard people say, well, the, the ark rested on Mount Ararat. Well, look at your Bible there. There's an S at the end of the word mountains. And it, it's not specific. It seems to be implying that it's somewhere in that mountain range. And we know today where this range is. It's in eastern Turkey. I think we have a map available. Yeah, we do. And, and I think this is fascinating in God's sovereign providence. If you look there, here's Turkey, right? Down here's Israel. Um, here's where Abraham was from, down in this area. This would be Mesopotamia in this area. Well, here is the mountains of Ararat, eastern Turkey, near the border of Armenia. 
And someone else pointed out to me, think of God's providence. If God had Noah and his family parked here, and he said, go out, multiply, fill the earth. I mean, look how accessible Asia is from this point. Think about how accessible Europe is from this point. Think about how accessible Africa is at this point. It's like God parked that boat. <laughs> said, okay, now spread out, fill the earth. <laughs> you know, it was, even that, I think, is fascinating. It had been five months since the flood began. And I wonder, what was it like? And this, again, is my imagination. But what was it like for Noah and his family to be in that boat for all those months? Well, well let me ask you a question. What do you do if you're waiting for more than 60 seconds? I'm not the only one that does this, right? I mean, if I'm, all, I'm always trying to make use of my time. I, I'm a multitasker even, you know. And if I'm anywhere for more than a minute, I'm pulling out my phone, I'm checking messages, maybe catching up on the news, scrolling to social media. You know, we, they didn't have phones. They didn't have phones on the ark. They, didn't, they weren't binge-watching movies. They weren't scrolling through social media. They didn't have electricity even. And so the ark, they probably had some oil lamps, but it was relatively dark, and I'm sure it was really smelly. <laughs> so it, my point is it wouldn't have been easy. It wasn't like a year's vacation. And Noah and his family, no doubt, had a lot of work to do. They had a lot of animals to take care of, the water to feed, clean the stalls. It wasn't easy. And I'm sure there were times. I mean, that boat bumped on the mountain. It wouldn't be hard for me to imagine Mrs. Noah saying, Noah, is, is it time yet? Well, I don't know, sweetheart. But I'm guessing the water level's going down. We'll have to wait and see what God has, you know? And, and that question, that wondering while they wait, while they wait. But one day came, another 40 days after the ark rested on the mountain. 40 days after that, Noah opens up this hatch and uh, sends out a raven. Why a raven? The Bible doesn't tell us, but some people speculate. Ravens are good flyers, and they're carrion eaters. <laughs> and uh, maybe Noah deliberately sent out an unclean bird, a raven, so that it could fly a long distance if necessary. And if it found some floating carrion or carrion, you know, rotting carcass on some mountain, it would be able to eat. And But the interesting thing is it doesn't say what happened to the raven other than it went back and forth. I mean, I apparently just kept flying around and... So Noah waited another week, right, seven more days. And you find this number seven repeated. You find the number 40. There's all kinds of numbers in this passage. Seven more days, and Noah sends out a dove. Now, a dove was a clean animal. It was a clean bird. And the dove was not a strong flyer like the raven, and it didn't eat carrion. It preferred valleys. So Noah sent out a different kind of bird the second time, and that dove went out. And came back. Not yet. Sorry, sweetheart. Got to, wait. Got to wait a while longer. Waited another week. Sent out that dove a second time. And this time, you kids know this story, don't you? What did the dove bring back in her beak? A freshly plucked olive leaf. Can you imagine how delighted Noah and his family would have been? So look at this. The plant life must be regenerating. The plant life must be being restored here by God's plan. That, it's an olive leaf. But they still didn't leave the ark. They waited another week. 
And Noah sent out that dove a third time, and the third time it didn't come back. Guess what? They still didn't leave the ark. <laughs> Apparently, if you follow the chronology, it was another 47 days or so. We can read that. Let's see in verses 13. Let's read some more here. In the 601st year of the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And so Noah and his family, even after that bird never came back, they still waited 47 days, probably because the earth, the water wasn't pooling, but maybe the ground was so soggy that they just needed to wait a little while longer. And if you are one of those detailed people and you wonder, well, how long were they in the ark total? All the calculations I've read was it was a little more than a year. So like a year and five days, a year and ten days, depends on whether you go by lunar calendar or solar calendar, but it was a little over a year. So you think about all that waiting, but sure enough, the embarkation day came, the get-off-the-boat day. <laughs> and I, I've tried to, when I read narratives in the Bible, I try to picture things. And I'm picturing Noah and his family, and that, that big door opens up, probably like a ramp, so the animals have a place to get out. You know, that big door opens up. Kids, what do you think, what do you think Noah saw? What do you think Noah felt when that door opened up? Maybe something like sunshine, fresh air at last. Well, well, maybe. I mean, I'm sure that was part of it. But you know, this is where the cutesy stories fail us. Because I'm confident that when Noah and his family looked out at the world, all those buildings that they were familiar with, wiped away. All the fields and vineyards that people cultivated, that he would have been familiar with the first 600 years of his life, gone. Life as they had known it in the past was gone. And the silence, the silence, outside of the eight of them, there, there were no human sounds. And if they preceded the animals, there were no animal sounds. And you would think, is there any hope for us? I mean, this is all a reminder of God's judgment, God's judgment on sinful mankind. This is all a reminder, a visual reminder, a, an auditory reminder of, of God's judgment upon the wickedness of his image bearers, mankind. Is, is there any hope for us? I mean, we're also sinners. We, as a family, is there any hope for us? And yet, you read this account, and you cannot miss, if you're thinking the wording 
as a reminder of a new creation. Where God said, no, you and your family, the animals, I want them out there. I, I want them multiplying. I want them filling the earth. And you say, where have we heard that before? We heard that in the whole creation account. And this is, this is like a recreation. It's like a fresh start in God's created world. So what's Noah going to do? What's he going to do? He steps off the ark. He and his family, the animals are being released. What's he going to do? Start building a house? What's the first thing he do? You tell me, you that have read this in the Bible. He built an altar. That's what it says in verse 20, doesn't it? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will, never, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Let me just pause there. First thing Noah did was he built an altar. This is the first time in the Bible we have a record of one of God's people building an altar. And he built it. Why would he do that? He just got off the boat. Why would he build an altar to the Lord? Well, I think there's probably two legitimate answers to that question. I think one is it was a thank offering. It was a thank you, Lord, for sparing us. I mean, look around. Look around. This, this earth has been wiped clean in the flood of God's judgment. And yet here we are alive, the eight of us. Or the only image bearer still alive. Lord, thank you for sparing our life. I know it would be thousands of years before this hymn would be written. But I wondered as I read this account, if had this hymn been written back before Noah's day, would he have sung this? Why was I made to hear thy voice? And enter the ark while there's room. When thousands make a wretched choice. And rather starve, rather drown than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. As Noah and his family contemplated the evidence of God's judgment upon the wickedness of mankind all around them. The question in their minds, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest on this boat of salvation, the ark? It wasn't my goodness. It was the grace of God. Else I had perished with everyone else. But I think a second reason Noah offered sacrifice to the Lord was he was conscious of his sin, and he was conscious of the sin of his family. And God had shown his righteous judgment upon mankind, and yet he spared these eight. And yet I'm sure Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives would have said, but we also are sinners. But they had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had shown grace to them. He extended grace to them. And so Noah took some of all the clean animals. Remember the animals went on the ark in pairs. A husband and a wife. Except for the clean animals. Interestingly, it was an odd number. Seven of those. Why did, why did God tell Noah to take 
more of the clean animals. Well, part of it would have been for food. You don't eat unclean animals, you eat clean animals. But there's another reason, and that was so you'd have animals for sacrifice. And Noah took from all, I don't know how many animals he sacrificed, but it was more than one. He took some from every clean animal and sacrificed it to the Lord as a means of saying, I know you have shown grace. Did you notice the wording in verse 21? It says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. That sin requires, sin requires some sort of penalty, some sort of, of sacrifice. Uh, a lot of people in our day have this shallow understanding of God. It's not based on the Bible. And, and, and they almost imagine God saying things like, well, what are you going to do? Boys will be boys, you know. And that he just kind of blows it off, like, okay, people sin, everybody, you know. That's not true. God is a holy God, and when we offend him, when we commit crimes of treason against the king, there has to be some sort of payment. And here, in this account, in Genesis 8, even before the days of Moses and the, and the Mosaic law, there was still this understanding. And so Moses sacrificed these animals to the Lord, and it says, the Lord found that aroma sweet. He, he found it satisfying that, that his object of grace, Noah, understood, understood the cost of sin, and that, that satisfied the Lord, that pleased the Lord. And, and there's a word you encounter now and then, in the, especially in the, not just the Old Testament, but also in the New, and that's the word propitiation. It's not a word we hear every day. I don't know how long you'd have to stand in Walmart before you hear someone using the word propitiation. It's not a common word, is it? But it's, a, it's hard to find a substitute. It just means to satisfy God's requirements. That God's a holy God and he has standards, he has requirements. And, and how do you satisfy those? How do you meet those? How, how do you say to God, I understand your holiness, I understand your right to extend judgment on me as a sinner. How, how do you satisfy his righteous requirements? You and I can't do that on our own. And even these animal sacrifices, clear back in Noah's day, they could not ultimately satisfy God, even though God smelled them as something soothing, something pleasing in his nostrils, as it were. There had to be the ultimate sacrifice coming one day. And he has a name, doesn't he? The Jesus Christ is said in the New Testament to be the propitiation for our sins. That you and I can't be good enough for God. People have this, this fallacy they live with thinking, I, I guess I need to shape up. I guess I need to turn over a new leaf. I think I need to get back to church. I need to do some religious things. I need to be good enough for God so that he'll smile on me. And the dreadful news is, friends, it doesn't work. You can't be good enough for God. And even if you could stop sinning today, what are you going to do about all those sins you committed every day of your life before now? What are you going to do about those? You need someone to be good for you, someone who's good in your place. And someone who is not only good in your place, but someone who's willing to die for all the times you were not good, you were not holy. And Jesus Christ is the only one who's qualified that Jesus Christ came and took our place. He 
As we say here at CCC, he lived the life we should have lived but didn't. And then he died the death we should have died but didn't. That Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's a merciful God. And then God makes a promise here in verse 22. And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think we're going to see more of it next week when Mark, Pastor Mark gets into chapter 9. But it, it says, excuse me, let me back up to 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, he's speaking to himself as it were, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Wait, this sounds incongruous. For the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done by flooding. And so God makes this unilateral, one-sided promise. He doesn't say to Noah, okay, Noah, if you'll do this, I'll do that. This is not, this is not an agreement between two parties. This is one-sided. It's unilateral. God makes a commitment on his own. He says, I understand man is sinful. From his youth, man is sinful. But I am a merciful God. I am a gracious God. So God is making this commitment not based on man's goodness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But based on his own decision to show mercy. And he says, I will never again send a flood to wipe out all mankind. And then God commits to giving the earth some sort of dependability, if you will. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And there's speculation, what all does that mean? But I think one thing it means is he's telling his image bearers, human beings, now living on a renewed earth and yet not fully renewed, man's still sinful and there's still the curse in Adam's day still upon creation. But he's saying, I want you to know that you can live with a certain amount of regularity. And there are still occasional fires and tornadoes and blizzards and localized floods. But never again is God going to flood the earth, destroy the earth in a flood. It's the introduction to the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made in Noah's day. Let me ask you one more question. And that is, what are we supposed to do with this passage? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative. It doesn't have a whole lot of commands, but what are you and I supposed to do with this passage? Well, I think one thing, a lot of you here today have been gripped by God's saving grace. If you're here today as a Christian, let me just remind you, God remembers you. Right at the beginning of chapter 8, we read those precious words, God remembered Noah. Well, if you're an object of God's grace, you're his son, you're his daughter. Let me just remind you, remind me, God remembers you. God remembers us. And so, on those days when we're wrestling in our hearts, on those days when we're struggling, God, have you forgotten me? God, do you see how hard life is right now? God, do you, do you see how anxious I am about this next step in my life? God, do you remember me? The revealed things belong to God, belong to us. The secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us. God's revealed to us. He has told us, he has told us in his word that he remembers us. And so for you and me as we live, continue to live in this fallen world, Paul says in Romans 8, we groan. 
and the older we get, the more we groan. <laughs> Do I hear some amens from my peers? <laughs> yeah, we groan, longing for the return of Christ, longing for the adoption of our bodies. But while we groan, we groan in faith. We groan in hope because we know that God is not only the sovereign king of the universe, but he's our heavenly father. Our father is the king, and the king is our father. That he loves me, holds me in his hands. So even though I might not know what he's going to do next with my life, even though I might not know when such and such is going to happen, I know that I am his and he is mine, that God will remember me. And our faith and our hope can stay strong in him. We can live at peace with God. But my concern today is not only for my fellow believers, but for those of you that have yet to bend the knee to King Jesus. Peter said in his second letter, he, he made some statements that quite frankly raised the hair on my neck. And it's difficult to read these, but I'm going to read them for the sake of your soul. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Scoffers will come scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water, and perished. But, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. And we live in a culture, and I, I'm older, and I, can, I have seen this happening in my lifetime, that there's a growing presumption that God wouldn't judge anybody. And I've had friends of mine say this to me. I've had friends say to me, oh, God would never judge anybody. How, how could you have the audacity to imply that God could judge somebody? And I think, well, that sounds sentimental, but is that the revealed thing of God? Is that what God says? And Peter says that they deliberately, they deliberately overlooked the fact that God has intervened in judgment in the past. To say God would never do that, well, why don't you go back in history and ask the question, has he ever done that? And the answer is, yes, he has. And exhibit A is the flood in Noah's day, that God has sent judgment in the past the good news is that God also sent salvation in Noah's day. And that ark is a, it was a real thing, but it's also a picture of God's salvation. When Noah and his family go in that ark, that is, that is God's intervention of salvation for that family. The preservation of the human race and the animal kingdom as well. It has happened in the past. And so to come in our day scoffing, Saying God would never do that, that's a deliberate forgetfulness of what has happened in the past. God did send judgment and God did send salvation. And I've wondered at times, trying to picture what those opening hours of the flood were like for Noah and his family. 
Did Noah and his family huddled there in the ark? Did they, with tears on their cheeks, did they hear pounding on the outside of the ark? Did they hear pounding on the outside? Noah, let us in! Let us in! But the day of God's patience and the day of God's mercy were over. They had years to repent. They had years to believe the prophet Noah, but they refused. And now the day of mercy was gone. And they perished in the flood. And my heart's cry is that none of you, none of you listening to me today, whether you're 8 or 88, that none of you today would say, never happened. It has happened, friends. God has sent judgment and he has sent salvation in the past. And there is a coming day of judgment. Well, God will judge this earth by fire, it says. And there is also the intervention of salvation, that God has sent his ark of salvation and his name is Jesus Christ. And I beg you today to run, to run into the ark of safety. Run into the ark of salvation, Jesus Christ. And as I was meditating on this passage, God remembered Moses or Noah. I was thinking about, we sang about it this morning, that, that thief on the cross, that criminal on the cross besides Jesus. Some of you know what that repentant criminal said to Jesus in their dying minutes. What did he say? Jesus Remember me, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I ask you today, if you're not yet, put your faith in Jesus Christ that today you would cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, remember me, remember me. Show me your mercy, show me your grace, and he will welcome you.